Well, do turn with me now to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. Uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, uh, where we will just actually look this morning at verses uh, 21 and 22. Luke, chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. The baptism of Jesus Christ is a monumental event in his life and ministry, and it establishes a framework, really, for how we are to understand everything else uh, that follows it. In fact, I, I don't think it's going too far to say that if you don't properly understand what's happening at the baptism of Jesus, you can't properly understand the significance of the life that he lived or the death that he died. Over the past few weeks, as we have looked at how Luke has described the ministry of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, the coming Messiah, we have noticed that all the way through chapter 3, Luke has couched the scene in distinctly uh, royal and, and kingly terms. It's how Luke set the scene by quoting from Isaiah 40, wasn't it? A passage that anticipates the coming glory of the messianic king as he arrived to rescue his people and release them from their exile. You remember that's that image in, in, in Isaiah 40 that Luke quotes. He wants us to have this in our minds, that image of, of valleys being filled and mountains being made low and the crooked paths being made straight and the rough places becoming level. All that imagery that is tied to the preparation for the arrival distinctly of a king. And a few months ago, uh, the vice president was visiting uh, Atlanta and there's a picture uh, that did the rounds of, of the motorcade driving from the airport into downtown Atlanta. And, and it's one of these iconic pictures that, that here you have the motorcade cruising down the middle of a completely empty highway. Seven northbound lanes, eight southbound lanes, all of them wholly deserted as the vice president travels through. Now, putting aside politics and our political philosophy and questions of whether or not a representative of the people, by the people, for the people, should be traveling in such ways, we put that to one side, but the imagery is clear. The power of the office is such that the way is made clear for her arrival. That's how Luke has framed chapter 3, the sovereign glory of the coming Messiah. 
And as we saw all the way through this, it is that imagery that then makes the grace and mercy of the Messiah as he comes in his first advent all the more wonderful and compelling. That this glorious king should come into the world a first time, not to judge the world, but to offer a gospel of grace and mercy to the world, blows our hearts and our minds as we reckon with its significance. But of course, it's not only the glory of Christ as King that we must see if we are to reckon with His glory as our Savior. We have to see also the wonder of Christ as our High Priest. Now remember, central to the old covenant worship lay the temple and and its predecessor, the tabernacle, and the system of of sacrifices and priests that it contained. And you remember how how that literally was central to the life of of Israel. Symbolically central was the the temple had been built out out on on Mount Moriah, right? This, This high point in which everybody came up to the temple, those songs of ascent sung as the, as the pilgrims made their way up there. Symbolically, here was the temple central to the life and devotion of Israel. But you remember its predecessor, the tabernacle, when Israel was, was journeying through the wilderness, was literally to lay at the center of, of Israel. As Israel camped in the wilderness on their way from Egypt to Canaan, you remember how, how Numbers 2 describes the layout for the camp for us. It's a, it's a wheel, isn't it? And you've got, you've got the tabernacle at the center, and then on the east, you've got the tribes of Judah and Issachar and, and Zebulun, and on the south, you've got the tribes of Reuben and Simeon and Gad, and on the west, you've got the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin, and on the north, the tribes of Dan and Asher and Naphtali. And and at the center of it all was the tabernacle, and every door of all of those tents was to open facing it so that symbolically, daily, all of Israel was reminded that their relationship with God by grace was the central reality of their lives. And, And everything about that tabernacle and then the temple that followed was dripping with God's grace towards His people. The fire of the altar that that blocked the entrance into the holy place was, of course, reminiscent of the fiery sword that had blocked Adam's and Eve's re-entry into the Garden of Eden. And that flaming altar spoke of the dreadful chasm that had been created between between a holy God and a a sinful people, this flaming barrier that told them that they could come so far but, but no further. But then the sacrifices that were offered on the altar spoke that glorious good news that God in His grace was willing to accept a substitute in the place of the worshiper. And then then more than that, the priests who served the altar and served the tabernacle and the temple spoke of an even greater hope than that, a hope not just of sins forgiven, but the hope of true reconciliation with God. Those priests who served the tabernacle and the temple, they were corporate men, weren't they? They they were men who did not just minister privately, but they were men whose whole lives were wrapped up in their vicarious office. 
They vicariously ministered in the place of the people. They stood as representatives of the people before God. We could say that they were men with two faces. They represented God to men, the the radiance of their white robes reflecting the righteous purity of heaven. But as they went beyond the altar and into the holy place, they went in there representing Israel to God. And it was especially true of the high priest, the high priest whose clothing was covered in representative symbols of Israel. He wore that ephod, 12 precious stones with the tribes of Israel carved on it, an onyx stone on each shoulder with the names of of the tribes of Israel carved on it. And you remember his headpiece, a a turban, but then on his his forehead, a gold plate. And what was inscribed on it? Holy to the Lord. A a statement not about him, but a statement about the Israel that he carried in his clothing. This man, the high priest, was Israel personified. And as he went about his his business, he, he did it bearing Israel with him, and as he went into the holy place, he carried Israel then there with him, and then on the day of atonement, as he went into the most holy place, into where the Ark of the Covenant was, where that mercy seat was, where that symbolic throne of God was, he symbolically carried all Israel in there with him. The hope, the promise of a day that would come when the people of God could truly enter into that nearer presence of God. And when Christ came into the world, He came not just as a redeeming King, come to set His people free from their captivity to sin and evil. He also came as the true and greater High Priest who would finally and fully achieve everything that the High Priest in the temple had anticipated and represented. It's what the author says in Hebrews 4. Since then, we have a a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you hear what the author is saying? In Jesus Christ, we have someone who is not just able to symbolically bring us into the symbolic throne of God on earth, but He is able to give us confidence to draw near to the actual throne of grace. A high priest who has come in, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, but without sin, a man who is able to bear us with him into that presence of God as our glorious representative. But how does Jesus do that? Or or rather, we could say, how do we see Jesus do that? How do the Gospels show us Jesus doing that? Well, well, by showing us Jesus 
conducting himself in all of his public ministry as the vicarious representative of his people, obeying where we have failed, resisting temptation where we have yielded, and finally standing in our place and bearing the wrath of God that was due to our sins. As our great high priest, Jesus conducted his public ministry not as a private individual. Jesus was not like those Old Testament prophets who called to Israel and implored them to come to the Lord and called them to hear the promises of the gospel, but always uh, from the outside. If we are to understand the public ministry of Jesus, if we are to understand what happens in Luke's gospel from this point on, then we have to understand that everything Jesus does, He does in our room instead as our representative agent and as the very embodiment of His people. And that's what Luke brings us here to see in these two verses that we have just read at the baptism of Jesus. Now, in order to understand all that happens here, we have to take a step back and understand just why Jesus was baptized in the first place. Uh, the baptism of Jesus is one of these things that, that we're familiar with, but if we think about it for very long, we begin to wonder why on earth would Jesus Christ be baptized with John's baptism, a baptism that was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, even John himself was confused when he saw Jesus coming to him. Right? We're told that, that John saw Jesus come to him out of the, the, the crowd in, in, in Matthew 3, and, and his initial reaction is to say, no, 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 Jesus, you, you have it backwards. Right? It's almost a, a Peter moment, isn't it? You remember Peter uh, on, the, on the road to Jerusalem, and, and Jesus reveals to them that he must go to Jerusalem, and, and he must be crucified. And what's Peter's reflex? It's to be, no, no, Jesus. You've misunderstood. And of course, Christ rebukes him and teaches him that it is necessary that he go to Jerusalem and, and be arrested and die and rise on the third day. But John the Baptist almost has this has the same moment, doesn't he? He sees Jesus coming to him, and he says to him, no, no, I, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. Right? John knew who Jesus was. John had known who Jesus was from his earliest days. We saw it, didn't we, in utero. Even as, his, and as he heard the, the, the voice of Mary, John had, had rejoiced in the womb because he already delighted in Christ his Savior. John's entire life had been one that had been lived in the, in, in the radiance of, of Christ and in his incarnate ministry. John knew that the purpose of his own life was simply always to point to Jesus. You can imagine it, can't we, how, how his father Zechariah must have, must have told him about the circumstances of his birth. How Zechariah must have sat the young John down and told him, Everything that Gabriel had said to him and, and taught him about how it all flowed out of the expectations of the coming Messiah and taught him that, that he was the great forerunner that was to prepare for the arrival of the coming Redeemer King. John's whole life lived under that banner of John 3.30, Christ must increase and John must decrease. 
And so when Jesus appears to receive his baptism, it all seems so, so backwards, right? John's baptism was a sign to prepare the people for the arrival of Jesus. So why on earth would Jesus himself receive that sign? But you remember Jesus' response to him. Matthew 3.15, Jesus says to him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. But rather than clearing things up, that too is mysterious, isn't it? There was no requirement in the law that people be baptized. There's no requirement in the moral law, no requirement in the ceremonial law, no requirement in, this, in the civil law that, that the people be baptized. And so we wonder, what does Jesus mean? That he must do this to fulfill all, all righteousness. Well, well, listen to to William Cooper on this. Not William Cooper, the, the hymn writer, but William Cooper, the 17th century Scottish minister. In his little book on the baptism of Christ, he says this. Listen, it's a, it's a long quote, but a, a good one. As for the righteousness of the moral law, he had fulfilled it perfectly from his youth, for he was the innocent Lamb of God without spot or blemish, and guile was never found in his mouth. But now he wants to say there is more required of me than just the performance of that common law given to everyone. There is the singular law of the Redeemer which I have yet to fulfill. This law was never imposed on any angel or person, but only on the Son of God, Christ Jesus, by which He was bound to love His Father, that it was fitting for Him to vindicate the glory both of His justice and of his mercy, and so bound to love his brothers and sisters that it was fitting for him to take the debt of their sins on him, to satisfy the Father's justice for them. This is that high point of righteousness our Savior wants to say, which I have yet to fulfill and for which I must be baptized. For in receiving baptism, I become obliged to do for my brothers and sisters what they could not do for themselves. That's what's happening here. That's the righteousness that's being fulfilled here, the particular righteousness that was attached to the particular work of Jesus Christ as our high priest. In order for Jesus to be our representative Savior, He had to take John's baptism because it was in that baptism that He became identified with His people and became our representative agent. We could say that in taking this baptism, Jesus is here being ordained to that priesthood that here He is being set apart to stand in the place of His people. That's why Jesus comes to receive this baptism. That's why Jesus comes out to be baptized with this baptism of John, this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Not repentance of His own sins because He had none to repent of, but a symbolic union with the sinners that He has come to save. Remember that, that image that we used a, a few weeks ago, Sinclair Ferguson's image. 
That as the people had gone down into the Jordan to receive John's baptism, as that water had been poured over their heads, it was as if the guilt of their sin was being washed off of them and into the river. But as the pure and holy Jesus Christ descended into those polluted waters, He was, this is Sinclair Ferguson's phrase, He was symbolically drenched in the sins of others. When the high priest was ordained, he was clothed in those robes that bore the names of Israel. As the high priest was ordained, his identity as a private individual was cloaked and covered by the identity of Israel, and that's what's happening here. As Jesus is drenched in these polluted waters, he is cloaked and covered by the identity of his people and inseparably identified with them from this point on. He begins now his public ministry being vicariously identified with us, being vicariously identified with sinners. That's the framework that we have to have in our mind as we see Jesus go on from this point. For 30 or so years, Jesus has lived a private life. We don't know much about it. Those years of his childhood, how we would long to know, wouldn't we? What Jesus was, was like as a, as a boy, how his brothers and sisters related to him as a, as a child. We hopefully not irreverently, wonder if his brothers and sisters were not perhaps perpetually frustrated with Jesus. They're always getting into trouble, but, but not Jesus. Jesus keeping the law from the, the moment of his birth, never disobeying his parents, never, never growing frustrated with his Brothers and sisters, we, we long to gaze into those things, don't we? We understand why those apocryphal gospels rose up trying to fill in the blanks, because we long to know, but we're not told. There's a privacy about his childhood. We long to know more about those years after that trip to Jerusalem for the Passover when he was 12. We, we want to know more about that, don't we? We want to know what, what his adolescence was like. We want to know what he was like as a, as a teenager. It's, it's tantalizingly absent from Scripture, but all that we know for sure is that those years were years of learning, years of preparation on all of them now issuing out into this moment when that privacy of Jesus' life issues out into this baptism and this public identification of Jesus with His people. With this baptism, Jesus is being set apart for a new aspect of His life, a new stage, the ultimate stage of His life, this moment when everything that has been said of Him at His birth was now to be revealed to the world, this moment when all of the prophecies that had spoken of His coming would find their fulfillment. That's the framework that we need to have in mind when we read what happens from this point on. In fact, it's the framework that we have to have in mind when we read Luke telling us that following Jesus' baptism, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove, and the Father spoke and said, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. 
That's another one of those captivating moments, isn't it? Can't help but wonder what it must have been like to stand there with John on the banks of the Jordan as the Spirit descended like a, like a dove and this word of benediction from the Father came from heaven. It's, it's so captivating that, that it's almost as if, as if that is actually the point that Luke wants us to see when he tells us the story of Jesus' baptism. Luke is tremendously brief when he talks about the baptism of our Lord. Matthew, Mark, and John all provide more detail, telling us more about what surrounds the baptism of Jesus, telling us more about the baptism of Jesus itself. John is, interestingly, so captivated by all that surrounds the baptism of Jesus that he actually forgets, doesn't tell us about the actual baptism itself. The other gospel writers so wanting to, to understand the weight of what that means for this Jesus to fulfill all righteousness and taking this baptism. But, but Luke, Luke almost, almost says it to simply get us to the next point. Having, having been baptized, he says, what is it? He says, he says, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Luke almost wants to get us through the baptism so that we could see the descent of the Spirit and hear the voice of the Father. And he's so keen to do it because, because it's at this moment that those two offices of, of Christ, the sovereign King, and Christ, the compassionate high priest, are bound together. Now, to understand this, we, we have to go back into our Old Testaments. We have to go back to Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11, we've just come through a series of woes, a series of passages in which God warns of judgment to come upon the arrogance and the rebellion of the Judeans. Judah, you remember, had been the one tribe preserved by God from the for, for the line of David, when the kingdom was divided after Solomon's rebellion. The northern tribes to be ruled by that servant of Solomon, Jeroboam, and that one tribe, Judah, was to be ruled over by the son of Solomon, uh, Rehoboam. God had said that, that, that he would give this one tribe to his, to his son, that, that to Solomon's son, that, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. But yet we know this preserved southern kingdom would follow the pattern of their father Solomon and would rebel against the Lord and seek protection and provision in other kingdoms rather than in him. And in Isaiah 9 and 10, God warns them of this foolishness, warning them that while diplomacy might seem like the basket in which they should put all of their eggs, the reality was deceptive and, and they would find themselves as enemies of God. And at the end of chapter 10, then came this promise that as God had preserved Judah through the rebellion of Solomon, so he would preserve a remnant through this rebellion. In Isaiah 10, verse 20, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. But then we read this in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And we get the image, don't we? 
Jesse was David's father. And while the tree of Jesse, the Davidic line, had been unfaithful and had been cut down, yet from that stump a shoot will break forth. You probably know the image even just from your own yards. Or a tree cut down, and it looked like it's the end. It's over. The tree is down. It's gone. But then one day you come out, and from that stump there's a little shoot that is coming up. It's, it's remarkable. Out of, out of death and desolation, new life springing up. It's, it's frustrating if you wanted to get rid of the tree, but if you're able to look at it more philosophically and metaphorically, it's wonderful, right? That life should be preserved and continue on. That's the image, right? At the moment of God's judgment, on the moment that, that, that Judah were taken into exile, it looked like the tree was down, it was gone, it was it was desolate. It was, it was dead. But yet this promise that there'd be a shoot that would spring up out of it, a remnant that would be preserved by God to remain, this wonderful metaphor. But then, in Isaiah 11 verse 2, we read this, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And we think, what's What's that about? I thought he was speaking about a preserved remnant. Some from Judah who would be preserved through this. So, why the change to the singular pronoun? Right? It's, it's mysterious, isn't it, as we read it? Why the change from the plural to the, to the singular? And, and it's mysterious and it's enigmatic. And then we come here and we hear this proclamation from heaven and we see how this comes together. Jesus is the promised son of David. Remember how that, how that theme was so strong and how Luke described the words of Gabriel to his mother in Luke chapter 1. Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Right? Luke has already established in our minds that Jesus is the promised son of David, the shoot of Jesse. But as the Spirit now descends upon him, as the Spirit of the Lord rests upon him, and this title is given to him, that connects him not just with David, but with corporate Israel as a whole, we see how these things come together. And the enigmatic promise of Isaiah 11 is perfectly fulfilled in him. If there is any doubt, the voice of the Father proclaims that Jesus is his beloved Son. As you remember from chapter 2, when we looked at Jesus in, the, in Jerusalem for the Passover, how theologically loaded that term is, a title only ever used for corporate Israel in the Old Testament. And you see how that's all coming together. Here in Jesus is the promised Son of David, who is the Son of God, the representative embodiment of His people. Here is Jesus, the promised King, who would rule faithfully over His people and rescue us from our enemies, but who would do it, we could say, from the inside, by, by becoming our priest and our representative, our fate, our future, wrapped up inseparably in His obedience in our place. Jesus Christ, the, the Spirit 
coming upon him, anointing him, as God had said the remnant would be anointed in Isaiah 11. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, proclaimed from heaven, Jesus taking our identity to himself as he comes up from his waters of baptism, drenched in our identity. Now, those roles of king and priest, those offices, you understand, were always separate and distinct in the Old Testament, always. And those who tried to to transgress the boundaries paid dearly for it. You, You know the story of Uzziah tried to mingle those offices in 2 Chronicles 26. He was cursed, you remember, and he ended his days as a a leper. Boundaries that were never to be crossed. Do you remember what happened to Saul? When Saul tried to mingle the offices and offer the burnt offering in 1 Samuel 13, Samuel told him that he would lose the kingdom because he had tried as king to be a priest always distinct, always separate. But then in Zechariah 6, a promise is made that a man would come who would be able to uniquely combine these offices and in doing so save Israel. And what is the name that's given to that man in Zechariah 6.12? The branch. An allusion to the shoot of Isaiah 11. And the promise is that the branch would come and he would sit as both king and priest over Israel. That's that's what Luke wants us to see, that as Jesus comes up from his baptism, this voice from heaven, this anointing of the Spirit, testify that Zechariah's day, Isaiah's day was now at hand. Here is Jesus, the glorious and mighty king that John testified to, and here he is coming up, drenched and clothed in the identity of his people to stand substitute for his people. These two golden ropes bound tightly together in one man, Jesus Christ. Victory and atonement, protection and propitiation bound tightly together in Christ our Savior. Let us pray.